Please turn please to the epistle to Titus. Titus and chapter 1. For this cause let thy be in verse, sorry, verse number uh, 5. For this cause let thy be in that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed it. That is uh, verse 15. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. Now, chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Now chapter 3, verse 4. But after that the kindness and love of God our Saviour toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the uh, washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Please verse number 9. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. All the best reading of his work. Now you will be wondering what is the connection, what is the link between these different verses which I have read. And I would suggest to you that uh, we see in this epistle which Paul wrote to Titus, uh, something which I would call the Epistle to the Seven Churches. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not referring to Revelation 2 and 3 of the Seven Churches in those chapters, uh, but I would suggest to you that in the Epistle to Titus, we have truth gleaned, as it were, uh, from the epistles of Paul to the different assemblies, the different churches. <coughs> now, the situation was that here was this uh, servant of God, Titus, 
on the island of Crete. As you know, it's a very long island with several uh, cities. And the gospel seems to have been taken there. Souls have been saved and no doubt baptized. And there was an ongoing work of God. Now, what were these Christians to do? You know, we hear it nowadays when there is some great gospel campaign that the evangelist will tell those who profess uh, to be saved, well now that's very nice, uh, you're born again and I'll give you a certificate just to go back to your churches. Now this is, what, this is not what the Apostle Paul thought, was it? Now, so you see, here have, we have a situation of Christians apparently gathering and there must be some teaching for them. And the Apostle Paul, in this epistle, as I say, would take up the truths of the epistles he's written elsewhere uh, and apply them uh, and give them to Titus. Now, I said that I sometimes would describe this epistle as the epistle to the seven churches. Now, let me explain what I mean. When the Apostle Paul wrote uh, his epistles, he wrote, first of all, uh, to the Romans. And in the city of Rome, uh, there were assemblies. Now, we don't speak of a Roman church, uh, as uh, some would use that term. The term church or ecclesia, assembly, as you know, and I'm reminding you of things which you are familiar with. I have no pretense to uh, bring some new light, but we know that the word ecclesia or assembly has only two meanings in a spiritual sense. Now it's used in other uh, uh, situations, but in a spiritual field, the word church or assembly, ecclesia, only has uh, two meanings. The word, as you know, is a composed word, uh, and it means to be called out. And we might take an illustration of uh, a school with 200 boys. And the headmaster, he decides he's going to uh, form a, a football team. I don't know how many uh, players you have in an American football team in, uh, in Europe. In, in soccer, you have 11, 11 players. So the, the, the headmaster, he knows the boys, and he sees one of the dudes that come here and stand there. He sees another one that he knows and plays very well. He says, you, you come here and stand there. And so he calls out a number of those boys to form a team. And they are called out and the rest to stay where they are. Now that is the ecclesia. Those that are called out. When we heard the gospel, when we trusted in Christ, we heard that calling and we went forth unto him when, we, when he said, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we find true rest in believing in the Lord Jesus. We were called out, and we formed by this very uh, act, we became members of the church, the body of Christ. It's not used in that sense very often, as you know. Uh, the first mention is in Matthew 16, when the, um, the apostle, uh, when the Lord Jesus says that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So uh, he is referring to that yet 
future body, which would start on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down, and has gone on through the ages until the Lord Jesus comes to take his church home to be with himself. That is the first uh, use of the word church, not used very often. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. But then you have the other use of the word, uh, the church or the assembly of God. And of course we know this refers to the local company um, of Christians gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you see the expression assembly of God in the New Testament, it is only referring to the local assembly. And uh, we would enjoy God's thoughts of the gathered company of the assembly, the assembly of God. So you have these two uses of the word. Now, so you see, Paul he wrote to the churches which were in Rome, the assemblies in Rome, and we find truth there. Then he writes to the assemblies in Corinth, the assembly. Or, sorry, in Corinth. And uh, we have two epistles uh, to the Corinthian assembly. The third uh, group of assemblies, you might say, are the as assemblies in Galatia. Now, we should never speak of the Galatian church. As I was saying, there, is only, there are only two uses of the word in the spiritual context. We hear of people speaking of the church in uh, Egypt or the church in uh, Brazil or of the uh, Indian church. Now, these are unscriptural uses of the word uh, because God only sees the church on the earth in a local environment. Now, so you have, uh, we have the Roman churches, we have the uh, Corinthian assembly or church we have uh, the Galatian assemblies, then we have the assembly in Ephesus then we would have the assembly in Philippi, that in Colossae and of course uh, the assembly in Thessalonica and as I go through this epistle, I discover uh, that the apostle Paul would touch on truth which concerns each of these seven assemblies or group of assemblies or uh, number of assemblies and uh, would remind Pontus of what we might term the Apostles' Doctrine. I believe the assembly is something very precious in the sight of God. It is the only place envisaged by the Word of God for His people. And we, uh, we would see in the Old Testament, we know the, of the types of the dwelling place of God. We see it in the tabernacle, we see it in the temple, we see it uh, uh, in, in many ways. Now, of course, the, the tabernacle in a typical teaching would tell me something of the Lord Jesus who tabernacled amongst us. In the temple, we see a more permanent dwelling there in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. But the, the, the thought, the prevailing thought there 
is those places were the places where God had placed his name. It was his dwelling place. Now, I have known Christians to say, well, you know, I would like to visit the Holy Land. Well, you might think, well, they want to go to Israel. Well, of course, we know that Holy Land is not Israel. Holy Land is there where two or three are gathered together unto my name. The assembly, we find three different aspects of the assembly in very familiar passages. If Matthew um, 18 and verse 20 would take Jesus of the gathering center, saints gathered together unto his name, you remember uh, in Israel that as the guiding pillar moved through the desert, then it would stop and uh, they would pitch their tents. And you remember that there were four banners around the tabernacle. Not twelve, but just four. And uh, three tribes were allocated to each banner. Now supposing that you or I were members of the tribe of Reuben. And so the climbing pillar stops and we know that we have to pitch our tent. And I look around the scenery and I think, well that you know there's a little bit of two palm trees over there and I'd like to put my tent there. No, no. Reuben's banner is there. So I must pitch my tent by the banner which belongs to me. Reuben, the, the banner of Reuben. And we see this in another context when uh, Israel gains a battle and uh, the name of the place is called Jehovah Nissi, the Lord my banner. Now, so the gathering center for the people of God is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that early worker in Venezuela, William Williams, he wrote one or two books, and uh, I think one of them was called Rabbi Where Brothers Thou, or How I Find the Nameless Place. And uh, of course, he is bringing home the truth of the place of the gathering to the children of God. So that is the first thing, a gathering center. But then we would go on to another familiar verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 42, where we have the place of teaching. Matthew 18 is a place of gathering. In Acts chapter, 20, uh, chapter 2, 21, uh, 41 42, we have the place of teaching. And we read how the Christians continue steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, amongst other things. When people get saved in the denominations, there is usually not much room for the development of spiritual gifts. And so often, a promising young man, he will be perhaps noticed by the pastor, who will think, well, now he is good potential material, and so he will send him off to uh, a theological faculty or to a Bible institute and get him qualified, taught, and with a diploma. Now, this is not God's method. I believe the only place that God has um, ordered for teaching the saints is in the assembly. And the provision, of course, as we all know, is in the gift of teacher. God has raised up those men who teach us the truth of God. I remember 
I was saved at the age of 18, and uh, I was in the Royal Navy in England and saved in the, in the port of Portsmouth. And I uh, was, I heard gospel there in the gospel hall in Cotton Road, got saved, and was baptized and received into fellowship. And I thank God. At that time, there were saintly elders amongst us who, who taught us the word of God, took an interest in us, and helped us on the way. And this was God's provision. And he has provided, not in uh, theological professors, but in men equipped by the Holy Spirit to teach the people of God. And so the assembly must ever be the only place of teaching in the New Testament. And uh, the, the elders have a very heavy responsibility. We need to pray for them. We need to bear them up in the presence of God because they have to, in the day to come, they will answer to God for how uh, the flock was fed. Of course, the assembly is also uh, the, uh, the place for witnessing. And in 1 Thessalonians, uh, from you signed and forth the word of God and so on. And if you were to look at a map of Greece, you would discover this. That Thessalonica, what is now Salonica, the second largest city in Greece, is way up there to the north, uh, the northeast of Greece. And Paul would speak of the testimony of the of the Thessalonian believers, way down, he said, in Macedonia, which is the northern part of Greece, down into Archaea, which is a peninsula uh, south of Athens. And so uh, the Thessalonian assembly was commended for their testimony in the gospel. So the assembly is a place of gathering, it's a place of teaching, and it's a place uh, for gospel witness. Well, so the Apostle Paul had this in mind when he writes to Titus, and we'll go through these passages which I read, and we will see how the truths in the other epistles come out, perhaps in a very small way, but in a very real way. In the first passage which we read, he writes this in uh, verse 5, For this cause then by the increase, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting. Now, of course, we understand that if I were to ask you now, what epistle in particular tells us about church order? And you would answer, of course, the Corinthian epistle. Now, when you think of Corinth, you think, well, dear me, what a, what a terrible place to be in. There was immorality, there was division, there was wrong teaching, uh, and, and so on. And you would think, well, that's not much of a place to be. But Paul had the Corinthian assembly on his heart, and he sought to restore order. And so when he writes to Timothy, to Titus, he said, now there in Crete, I want you to set in order the things that are wanted. You have got to establish church order. And of course the instructions are there in the New Testament before us. You know, Corinth was a very interesting city. It was a seaport, very cosmopolitan. And to the north of Corinth, not so far away, was the city of Athens. 
Now we know that in the ancient world, Athens was the seat of human wisdom, of philosophy. And the great Greek philosophers all were found in Athens. And of course we know there was superstition, as we will see that theme. But uh, Athens was known uh, for its philosophers and its wisdom. And, uh, well, if you were to go back to Corinth, to then you could go down south and you would cross over the peninsula of Achaia and you would arrive at a town called Sparta. And Sparta was known for its soldiers. Uh, there was a military college there and men were trained and the Spartan soldiers were feared because of their bravery in battle and the Spartan soldiers were very strong men. Now, so you see, up to the north, you have man's wisdom in Athens. Down to the south, you have a man's power in Sparta. What could Paul say to the Corinthians in the first chapter there? He speaks to the Lord Jesus, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we don't need human wisdom, we don't need human strength. Uh, there are many incidents, in, particularly in the Old Testament, when men were cast upon God and they saw uh, the danger they were in, and God answered their need. Uh, so the Corinthians, they had the power of God, they had the wisdom of God, and uh, the, the need there was to put in order the things that send all the things that were wanting. So the first truth we have concerns Corinthian truth. There in chapter 1 and verse 6. So Paul then he sets out the need for elders and uh, what would impress us is the pattern that was valid for Corinth was valid for Crete and is valid today. Now I was privileged as a young Christian to travel very widely and uh, I visited several countries because I was in the Navy and what impressed me was whatever the country I went to you could find assemblies of Christians gathered to the Lord's name on the same principles that we have in the New Testament. What was good uh, for Corinth? It's good in Australia, it's good in Japan, good in China, good in Singapore, good in Brazil, good in every country of the world, because it is God's pattern. So, uh, he could point out that, well, you uh, you would appoint elders, of course they are in the plural, uh, they, uh, they are amongst the flock, they are not over the flock and amongst them, they are guides, they are a model for the church, elders are not managers, and it is a very heavy burden, as I mentioned, uh, to feed and to shepherd the flock of God. Well, we'll move on. In verse, in Titus 1 and verse 15, we have a very short 
sentence, unto the pure, all things are pure. Now, you, you'll say, well, which epistle would speak of that? I suggest the epistle to the Philippians. Now, we know the Philippian epistle is often, they're often taught that there are four chapters, four aspects of fellowship. Chapter one is the fellowship in the gospel. Chapter two is a fellowship in this, in this church. Chapter three speaks of fellowship in suffering. And of course, chapter four is fellowship in liberality. But in chapter three of Philippians, the apostle would exhort the Philippian Christians to think that concerning those things which are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, and good report to think on those things. Now, Philippi was a very interesting city. Uh, it was, of course, part of the Roman Empire, as all that part of the world was. And uh, in the Roman army, when a man finished his military career as a veteran he was given a piece of land in one of the uh, territories uh, occupied by Rome and a very favorite spot for a number of veterans I suppose they tended to stick together was Philippi and Philippi was, had a very large population of veterans from the Roman army now, military men in the past and perhaps today are not known for their purity, for their clean conduct, uh, for their uh, generosity, uh, for their kindness. And yet here in Philippi, we find souls saved through the preaching of the gospel read in the book of Acts. And some of those would have been those hard, unclean men. And they're exhorted to think on the things which are pure. I heard a very lovely uh, description of Christianity. It's a very short one. And it's this, the fellowship of the pure. That's, that's so very true. That men with a vile background, never you see that? Men and women in the cesspit of sin, who have heard the, 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 the gospel message, who have turned from their sins and believed on the Lord Jesus, have their have their lives transformed. A man you would never have imagined uh, have become a true saints of God. Uh, so you see, pureness is something which is characteristic of the Christian assembly. And uh, this is seen, as I say, with, uh, when Paul writes to the Philippian believers to remind them to think on those things which are pure. In chapter 2, we have read verses 11 through to uh, 14 and 
we discover a number of truths there. In verse 11 and 12, we have read this. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly dust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, you will notice the order of things. The grace of God that bringeth salvation teaches. In other words, you see, because you are saved through grace, and only because you are saved through grace, then you will seek to live a godly, sober life in this world. Human religion does the thing the other way around. They set a ladder going up to heaven, and they say, now you're at the bottom, and you have got to pray and work your way to heaven. Some years ago in Daphneum, we had a, a Portuguese couple come along to the hall, and the man professed to be saved, and he told us that when he had been in Portugal at that time, a very devout Roman Catholic country, he said uh, he uh, had been to Angola, and uh, which at that time had been a Portuguese colony, and he committed all sorts of crimes as a soldier uh, fighting in Angola. And he came back to Portugal, was discharged from the army, but he had a very heavy conscience for what he had done. And he went to see the priest, and the priest said, well, uh, in Lisbon, he said, there's a some sort of church on a hill as it were. Now he said there are so many steps going up to that building. Now I want you to get on the on the bottom step on your knees and I want you to pray uh, our Father and Hail Mary and on each step you'll say three of those prayers on your knees and work your way up to the top and then uh, you'll, there's some hope of forgiveness of your sin. And that, that's religion, isn't it? And, but you see, Christianity is totally different. We are seen, sucked down in the heavenly places of the cross. We, uh, you know, some people say, oh, you're saved. You're a very pretentious person. Well, I, I don't think so. I remember, you see, when I was a Roman Catholic, and uh, when I got saved, I was in the barracks, uh, learning radio communications, and uh, I got saved, and I stopped going to Mass. And uh, one day, uh, in the barracks, I met the, uh, the Roman Catholic priest, and he said, well, here, he said, uh, I, I haven't seen you at Mass for a while, what's, what's happening? No, sir, I said, uh, you see, I, I'm saved now. He said, you're what? I said, uh, I'm saved. He said, young, young man, you're a very pretentious person. He said, not even the Pope would dare say that he's saved. Well, I don't know about the Pope. But I knew I was saved, and there was nothing pretentious about it. You know, talking about the Pope, I'm just opening the, the brackets for the message. Um, just before I got saved, I think the Pope Pius XII, he died. And uh, we were sent, uh, we were told as Catholics, we would have to go to Mass. 
car. So we went to Moscow and we didn't know why, because it was a, a Tuesday or something, and we thought this was very unusual. Uh, well, they called us off doing certain jobs, so that was okay. But anyway, we, uh, we went along to the, to the chapel, and the, the priest was there, and he said, well, you're probably wondering why uh, I'm holding Mass. He said, because His Holiness, the Pope, has died, and we're going to pray for his soul. And I mm-hmm. thought at that time, I knew nothing about the gospel. I thought, dear me, if we got to pray for the Pope, then there's not much hope for me. So uh, there was nothing pretentious that I said to the, uh, the priest that I was saved. I remember being on a ship in the Indian Ocean. We were crossing from Red Sea to uh, Singapore. And there was a small ship, it was a frigate, and we had a heavy beam sea on the starboard side, and we were rolling very, very heavy. And one of the seamen working on the upper deck fell over the side. Another man who was working with him, he saw him go, and he got a life belt, and he threw it to him. And uh, so the ship slowed down, turned around, and came back, and he threw a rope to him. And we hauled him up the side of the ship, onto the deck. This seaman, he looked at his friend, he threw the life belt at him, he said, thank you, he said, you saved me. Potential, I know. It's just gratefulness. And you see, when we tell people that we're saved, we're not being pretentious, we're being grateful. We would not deny the Lord Jesus by saying we're not saved. Now, so in this verse we looked at, the grace of God, we, we've been saved and we're up there. Doesn't this teach us of the Ephesian epistle? Chapter 1, 2, and 3 tells us we're sat in the heavenly places. Uh, then we read how through grace you have saved, by grace you have saved through faith and not of yourself, is the gift of God. And so these early chapters of Ephesians set us up there in the heavenly places. But this grace of God teaches us other things, how to walk. And so we, uh, we learn uh, of the Christian's walk. He is to walk in love. He is, walk, he is to walk uh, worthily. He is to walk uh, not as the other Gentiles walk. He is to walk uh, as children of the child of light. And he is to walk circumspectly. That's what the grace of God teaches me in Ephesians. That I am now saved. Now I must pay attention to how I walk. The, 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 the expression to walk circumspectly, of course, is an old English expression. It just means to walk very carefully. To pay attention. The Christian <coughs> often sins through carelessness. It doesn't matter. You know, it's not that uh, I'm doing anything wrong. Uh, and it doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, it, it's no problem in the Testament. The Christian must be careful in his walk. So there, uh, Paul, in that couple of verses, he teaches Titus. He tells Titus, now, you teach them Ephesian truth. Tell them uh, that they are saved by grace, but now because they are saved, let them pay attention, they heed how, how they walk. But in the same uh, verses, we discover this. In verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing, or the appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. This would take me to the epistle, the epistle to the Thessalonians. 
looking back, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the first epistle to the Thessalonians, you have five mentions in the five chapters concerning uh, the, uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus. We read them, we, we, we thought of that first chapter where uh, they were to wait uh, they were turned from life to serve the living and true God and to wait his son from heaven. So uh, partly the Thessalonian epistle was one of the first to be written. And right there there was this hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know when. We're not looking for signs. You won't find any mention of the rapture in Matthew 24 and 25. You see that is that was a hidden truth revealed to the church. And we, you know, some people say, well, look what's happening in the Middle East. Look at the, look at the world's condition today. Um, one or two uh, American saints and say, well, you know, uh, the United States is not what it used to be, and we can see a, a downward drift and immorality and corruption at political levels, all the rest of it. Every country is the same. But these are not signs concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul, he ex expected Christ to come during his lifetime, uh, when he said, we don't remain. And uh, the Lord could come at any time. Uh, and so the Thessalonians were exalted to, re uh, rather, Titus was to remind the Christian Christians concerning the coming of Christ. Now, often in the New Testament, you will think, for instance, in this passage particularly, he says we're, we're looking for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, that is clearly a millennial hope, the coming of Christ in glory. And very frequently in the scriptures, when you have reference made to the coming of Christ, it is not necessarily just the rapture. And it's not necessarily just his return in glory. And it would cover a, a range of events. And so Paul doesn't go into uh, details as to those events. But the overall hope of the child of God is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and to take us home to be with himself. And you know, we're, you think now, it would remind me that uh, once we're called home, if, the, if Christ comes tonight, our suffering, our sorrow is over. We'll no longer be able to suffer for Christ will no longer have the privilege of being scorned because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that many saints, but I know personally in the North Africa, are looking for his coming. Humanly speaking, they have a very difficult life. They have no, humanly speaking, no possibility of ever being alive to meet as Christians. Never. They live in countries, not simply Morocco, but in other countries, 
where the very notion of allowing Christian testimony is anathema to God. And they're looking they're looking for that day when all the, this persecution, this intimidation, privation, all that's finished, and they'll be with him. Now, I, I would say this, we, we don't know too much about what we're doing, they're doing. I think that the Spurgeons, he said this, he said, you know, the, the laboring man, and of course this is back in the 19th century, he said, the laboring man, he toils from morning to evening, and he's just looking forward to heaven when he'll find true rest. He said, but the, the man who doesn't have to work too hard, you know, he's got a bit of money, he doesn't need to really uh, sweat. But, uh, he said, well, when you ask him about heaven, oh, well, heaven will have an opportunity to serve us. Well, we don't know exactly what heaven will be like. Very many the rest of the people of church. But we believe that in heaven we will have activities which surpass anything we can possibly imagine. And I wouldn't speculate on that. So the Thessalonian believers were, uh, were looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul was it, I just remind the Christians of that blessed hope. But then in that same verse, we have this. Speaking of the appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. One verse. Great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. What Paul teaches Titus there, the deity of Christ. Some years ago, I was speaking to a self star global witness. Of course, they're not global witnesses. Isaiah 43, God says to Israel that they would be his witnesses. And uh, I would tell these people, I said, I would ask them, well, are you Jews? No. Then only the Jews are the Jehovah's Witnesses. Anyway, I was speaking to one man, and he, he had some understanding of things, very, very faulty. He said, well, you know, I, I believe that Christ was crucified. Of course, it wouldn't have been a false mistake, but we'll leave that one side. Even crime uh, in the dictionary suggests an every mistake, but that, that's not important. Uh, I believe that Christ died and was crucified. I believe that he died for our sins. He says, but I have a problem. He said, I do not believe that Christ is God. He's the Son of God, but he's not God. Now, this is the question for him. He said, How are you saved? He believed. He's a sinner. Christ died in him on the cross. He raised the third day. He said, Come, no. Why did I say no? Because the Lord Jesus said this to the Pharisees. He said, If you believe not that I am, you should not be saved. You see, I am the divine title. You see, I am that sent Moses uh, to the people of Israel and Egypt. The Lord Jesus should say before Abraham was, I am. And the Lord Jesus is that great I am. And uh, so we believe that uh, at the day of Christ, there comes one who 
gives me what I didn't deserve. You know, you have a presidential place in, in France, I don't know about here, on the 14th of July, which is the, uh, the, the last few days of the French national uh, holiday, then uh, the president will uh, grant his, uh, his grace to certain prisoners. They don't deserve it. They're in prison for crime, but they are. They get the, the, the presidential grace and they are free. They don't deserve that. Now we are justified by grace. I said not by mercy. Now what's mercy? Mercy withholds what I deserve. God be merciful to me a sinner. Don't pour down on me the wrath that I deserve. That's mercy. Grace gives me what I don't deserve. Mercy holds back what I really did. And so we are justified. We're justified by his work. And then of course, it is all my justified. Now finally, when we get to verse 9, we have the exhortation to avoid foolish questions, inhalations, and strivings about the law. Well, uh, we understand that this is referring uh, to what Paul teaches in the Galatian epistle. The strivings about the law. Now you know, of course, that the, uh, the epistle to the Galatians contains no praise the reason is they were bringing in or they were allowing into the assemblies in Galatia teachers who said you know faith in Christ is not enough you need the Lord as well they were adding to the work of Christ it's as though you went into some great art gallery and great museum and you saw a painting by Rembrandt, or one of those great uh, Renaissance artists. And you thought, well, I don't like the way he painted uh, uh, that, uh, that person's clothes, so I'll just get some paint and improve it. <laughs> you don't improve Rembrandt, do you? It's a masterpiece. And the work of Christ, I would say, the reverence is a masterpiece. You can't improve it. And you can't add to it. Now you might say, well, that's all right, but you know, uh, we're, we're not in Galatia. And where's the problem today? Oh, it's a very real problem today. There is a denomination which claims to be, in some circles, evangelical. And it's what is termed the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Years ago, I had a phone call from a man in Capitan, and he said, uh, Mr. O'Hare, I guess, uh, I've been given my name, uh, I'd like to meet you. I guess, who are you? He said, uh, I am the new Adventist pastor. I'm the new pastor of the Adventist Evangelical Church. I said, Well, you know, that's a contradiction term. If you're Adventist, you're not evangelical. And if you're evangelical, you're not Adventist. So that uh, movement, millions of members, churches and schools throughout the world, teaching that the work of Christ is not enough, and that we have to add, that was keeping 
tithing and other things uh, to obtain salvation. So the Apostle Paul said, look, I just don't let that error come into the Don't do that. Don't strive over the law that teach that we're saved through this. So you see, in this very short epistle, three chapters, we have reference made to all those great and glorious truths that we find in uh, in Corsicus from the Romans right through to the Catholic and so they have been sent. Our God and Father,